Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Coding and Construction Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help entrepreneurs, the difference makers, and the game changers in the building materials coding and construction industry. My guest today is Todd DeWalt, who has extensive experience in the construction industry and is the go-to consultant for construction business owners. Todd has a popular podcast, The Construction Leading Edge, as well as many other useful resources. Todd, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Todd, can you tell the listeners a bit about your background? Sure. I am a longtime construction guy. I started in the commercial construction industry about 22 years ago or so. went to work for a general contractor. And uh, since then, I have been a business owner. I've been a business development guy selling construction, specifically sewer rehabilitation products, which that's a story in and of itself. (laughs) I've managed a business. I've grown it from, I grew a business from 4 million to 10 or $11 million in revenue over the course of three years. I've been an owner's rep. And now I coach and consult construction business owners and leaders. And in a nutshell, I'm all about helping construction business owners eliminate chaos and maximize revenue. So that's, that's what I'm up to these days. Awesome. So over the years, you must have learned a lot of things from through books and through other people, what, what would you say your top three habits or routines that you kind of attribute to your success? Sure. Habits and routines, first of all, I think are incredibly important. The one thing I'll, I'll say about reading books, and even though I am a, a podcaster, I have actually, actually cut back on consuming content. I used to listen to lots of podcasts, read lots of audiobooks, read lots of physical books, and I was I was in a bit of an information overload. So one, it's not really a habit or a routine, but one approach that I've taken is subtraction. Hmm. So I I don't think people need I used to think that when I found the right piece of information, I would find that silver bullet, that one thing that was out there, and then it would solve all of my problems. And the reality is it's about subtraction. So it's more about execution and implementing the very little bit that you know than it is about consuming more and more information. So in entrepreneurial world today, there are lots of people talking about all the books that they read. And I read 52 books a year. I read a book a day and that sort of thing. And that's great. But how much of it actually shows up in your life? So I want stuff to show up. So what I'm about now is I'll read, if I read two books a year, three books a year, and I can get some of that stuff to show up in my day-to-day life, then I'm pretty happy. So that being said, there are a couple of routines and habits that I've found to be the keystone habits for me, they set me up for a successful day. So as I deconstructed good, productive, positive days, I found these things to be in place. And then I've also noticed if I I find myself in a bit of a funk and things aren't going well, and I look back, these are the things I'm not doing consistently. So the thing for me, some of these, a couple of these are just ridiculously simple, but two that are connected. One is 
getting up at five thirty in the morning. And then really the, frankly, the setup for that is if I, uh, if I can get my set, my coffee maker to come on to start at five thirty and schedule it, then that makes it easier and much more likely for me to get up at five thirty. And then when I get up at five thirty, then that sets me up for success. It seems that I'll, if I get up early before my brain starts running, before the, the monkey mind starts taking over, then I, I get in front of that stuff and it's, it's a much more productive day. So number one is getting up early. Number two is I go through a priming exercise early in the morning before I do any work. And this part of this comes straight out of one of my favorite books, which is Think and Grow Rich, Mm. in which the author advises everyone to write out their goals, what they, not really goals, but what they want to accomplish, their decision, and read that out loud every day. So I use that to prime, sort of like priming the pump, getting things moving in the right direction, gratitude reading my goals out loud, reminding myself of the decisions I've made, how I'm going to operate. This is my operating system. I have a big piece of paper on the wall with eight or maybe 11 things to remind myself, Todd, this is how you need to operate. And it's right above my desk. It's a 24 by 36 piece of paper. So it's kind of hard to miss. And when I do that, then I'm in, I've started my day off pretty well. And the third habit would be exercise. Oh, beautiful. I found if I don't, I don't get to the gym three times a week. Certainly if I don't go to the gym at all, then things just sort of deteriorate. So going to the gym two or three times a week, weightlifting, Beverly, a cardio guy, if you ever see me running, you should run too, because something's probably chasing me, but I will get into the gym and lift weights. So those are the three things that I've found to be really helpful. They set me up for success. They create a good environment. Maybe it's a good mental environment where I'll succeed. Wow. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I was listening to your points and like point by point, I just bang on, on what, what I believe in as well, actually the exercise. I'm big on writing down goals with a deadline, like every in the morning and just before going to bed, but and waking up early, you know, I don't have the coffee maker. That's, that's kind of an interesting one. I like that trigger for you, but those are great points along with your subtraction, which is the less is less is more, which very sound advice, especially since there's so much information out there right now. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. These are the habits that you sort of developed over the years, but what I'm always curious because I love to know what the turning point for people is or when, when they've sort of transformed. You know, can you kind of think back to your career and all the experiences you had and when you had that sort of turning point where you sort of felt transformed and what occurred uh, during that time and some of the conditions that existed during that time? Can you sort of talk us through maybe a moment that's happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. So picture this. Here, here was the situation. Okay. I was driving back from Chicago. I live in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. I was in the car back from Chicago 
I was extremely frustrated. My, and I had no reason to be frustrated. My back was spasming like crazy. I was having oh, wow. chronic back problems. And I was in an absolute funk. And here's why that didn't make sense. This is probably what frustrated me. What concerned me the most was I was on the way back from meeting with the owners of the company I was working for at the time. And they had just given me a bonus that was 50% more than what I expected. Oh, okay. And it was more than we had discussed, more than far, far greater than anything, any other bonus I'd ever had. And there I was driving back and I was, I was frustrated. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? Not, not only was I frustrated, my back was spasming and it was in great deal of pain. So that's when I knew something was wrong. So I had set this goal up until that point. I had been extremely achievement oriented. Mm. And this was the culmination of achieving a really big goal and huge, huge payoff. But I was frustrated. And this is this was the goal that I had worked hard for and, and achieved, and it didn't do anything for me. And that, that scared me a little bit. And as I looked back, I realized that over the past 20 years, I had been very achievement-oriented. I would set a goal. I wanted to start my own business. Did that through the business. Did that. Landed the big deal. Accomplished that got the raise, landed the big project, finished the big project. Everything I set out to do, I achieved, but I was, I was disappointed. Not only was I just neutral, it's not like I was like, oh, well, that wasn't so great. I was actually frustrated. Wow. And it was because I was going after something. I was thinking, when I achieve this mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. then I'll be happy. And that's what I told myself. And the reality was, it just wasn't there. And that was really disappointing. So I realized that it's not about achievement. So along with that, there there were several things that became pretty clear to me during this time. One was that I needed to shift away from achievement because it wasn't doing me any good. The other thing that had been going on for the past 20 years in a mindset I had was that I just needed to land on the right idea. And when I landed on the right idea, then it would be like striking gold. Everything would be easy. The bells would ring, the money would flow in (laughs) and all would be well. I would be set for life. So because that was my mindset, I would start on a project or start on an initiative get a little frustrated and think, well, this is not the right idea. If it was the right idea, it would have hit by now and this would be easier. And I would jump to the next idea and I would do that for a while. So combine that with this achievement mindset that I had, I was bouncing around and I thought it was all about the right idea. And I thought when I hit that idea, then everything would be great. So I moved from opportunity to opportunity and was always looking for the next big thing, always looking for the finish. And I realized 
that that wasn't working for me. So I was like, all right, Todd, we're 20 plus years into the career here. We're pretty frustrated. We're overweight. We have chronic back problems. We're bouncing around. This is not going well. So I went on a search to find something I, I needed. I was really frustrated. I needed to find something. And the turning point was probably the book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there are, there are two books that I had this experience, one of which was Think and Grow Rich. The other is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And the experience was, was reading the book and I looked up from the book, put the book down and said, this changes everything. Mm. And what I took away from thinking Grow Rich that changed my mind was that it's not about the idea. It's about making a decision. So instead of bouncing around, trying to land on the right idea, playing like idea whack-a-mole, hoping that I would hit the right idea, I just needed to decide what I wanted. And I remember going through this exercise. This was in 2014, maybe 2014, 2015. And I've heard it said that self-awareness is like hugging a porcupine. The closer (laughs) you get, the more uncomfortable it becomes. And I remember sitting down and writing. I probably still have the notebook somewhere. What do I want? I thought that would be an easy answer to easy answer to come up with, but it wasn't. And I did a lot of soul searching, had several opportunities in front of me, none of which seemed particularly better than the others. And I just picked one. And it happened to be the construction leading edge. At that time, I had started the podcast, gotten frustrated with it because of the lack of results or apparent lack of results, put it on the shelf, didn't touch it for six months. And I decided, all right, this is what I'm going to put my head down and work on. I decided I was going to make this successful. And when, here's what I've learned about that is when you make a definite decision, I can't explain this, but I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is what happens. When you make a definite decision of what you want as Napoleon Hill suggests and actually goes goes beyond suggesting he would say this is a requirement if you want to be successful. When you make a definite decision, what I found is that the the ideas, the plans, the resources, the people, the connections that you need are attracted to you. They come to you. And you have fewer symptoms of shiny object syndrome where that's what I suffered from for years was shiny object syndrome. Oh, look at this thing over here. Oh, maybe I should go build software or oh, maybe I should build this little business or always looking to the next thing. So the turning point for me was in that frustrating low spot. One, I decided I'm going to get my health under control. I'm going to take control of my health. Somebody is going to determine how healthy and how successful I am, and it might as well be me. So I took control of those things, figured out what the problems were, put some plans into place, got disciplined about it, and then I decided that I was going to slog it out and and be successful with the business. So the turning point was really changing from 
and achievement mindset to embracing the process and then changing from the mindset of it's all about the idea to it's all about the decision. Well, that's very powerful. I like that. So you mentioned that the podcast is what you chose. Like, what was your thoughts behind that? I mean, you made a decision, but what inspired you to pick that as your choice? Well, at the time, I was looking at a couple of other things, one of which was a, a website and a going to help solve the problem of disenfranchised or disengaged men, guys who were in my situation, mm. frustrated, unhealthy, out of shape, that sort of thing. And spent a lot of time working on that. So I, I looked at that option and I had some traction with that. And I was pretty passionate about it. It's a big problem that needs to be solved, still needs to be solved. And then as I looked at that option versus the construction leading edge versus working for somebody else, I decided that there were a lot of other voices, probably other people better qualified than me to help with the disenfranchised, disengaged man problem. Mm -hmm. But I was uniquely qualified to help construction business owners. And there weren't many people trying to help construction business owners. So I thought I can either be a voice in a big room full of other people, or I can go help an underserved client base where I might be one of the few people who, who can help. So that's, I decided to pull it back off the shelf, blow the dust off and decided I've got to turn this thing into a business. I've got to figure it out. And wow. yeah, so that was the decision-making process. What did the first couple of steps look like for you? I mean, did you have a bunch of clients lined up because of your other contacts or was it a bit of a slog to, to get them through the door? It was a, more than a slog. I, I had no clients. <laughs> I actually had no business model. I had a podcast and I had started the podcast with the premise that if I build an audience and attract people and they, when I get this critical mass of people, eventually I'll, I'll land on a problem that they have that they'll pay me to solve and I can solve and make money at. So my first couple of steps were, let's get the podcast moving again, interview people. The funny thing was, before I put it on the shelf, I was pushing and marketing and doing all sorts of things to try to get the podcast to grow, and nothing worked. And then in the six months that I didn't touch it, the downloads just took off, which I don't know what happened, but that's the thing about podcasting is it's a bit of a black box. You have no idea what's, what's going on inside. <laughs> so I said, all right, this is the universe. This is God telling me you just need to go do this thing. And, and there, was, there was no business there. Nobody was asking me. Nobody was saying, Todd, I will give you money if you'll do this thing. And I had actually yeah. developed some products and tried to put together a, some training programs and just got crickets. Tried several things. And it just... This didn't work. And yeah. it, it was difficult because I had built something that nobody asked for. Nobody asked for another or a construction podcast. There were very few back then. And nobody was asking me, sending me checks, asking me to help them with anything at the time. So I decided it's, there has to be a problem out there that people need help with. And if I just keep looking and I don't quit, this was, this was another 
mindset change that came along with the placing the importance on the decision is just perseverance, just not quitting. So I decided if I, if I don't quit, if I pass the persistence test and I persevere and I just keep keep pushing and keep giving value, keep adding value, eventually it will come back to me. There's an old Zig Ziglar saying that if you help enough people get what they need, eventually you'll get what you want or something to that effect. So it's like, all right, we're going to, we're going to load up the, the universal scales of generosity or karma or whatever you want to call it. We're going to sow lots of seed and give lots of value away and believe that it's going to come back at some point. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just decided this thing's going to work somehow. And I'm just going to give away ridiculous value every chance I get. Awesome. You, earlier, you mentioned that you're hoping to just try a bunch of stuff to see what people were going to pay for or what, where the value was. What did that be? Like, what, what did you find out? Like, what, where, where did construction owners need your help? What were they looking for? What I've found is actually what I... What they came to me for, the messages that resonated, the problems that I talked about that got a response included cash flow problems, working 60, 80 hours a week, not enough time, not enough money, chaos in the business, I'm on the edge of burnout, etc. That's what people came to me and said they had. But I found that those are symptoms of underlying problems. Sort of like if someone goes to a doctor and says, my left arm hurts, my jaw hurts, and I'm lightheaded. Those are often symptoms of a heart attack. So people go to the hospital, they think they know what's wrong with them, but they're just talking about the symptoms. And if you treat the symptoms, they just don't go away. So people came to me with their symptoms of cash flow, overworked, chaos, burnout, not growing, frustration, et cetera. And what I found was that the root cause was a little bit counterintuitive. So what they really need is accountability. They need somebody to hold them accountable and help them stay focused. They also, probably more importantly, they need help with their mindset. They need to upgrade their mindset. That's the number one thing, really, is mindset. So. What I help people with is to identify ways that they shoot themselves in the foot. The way I, as I tell people, just about every business owner I talk to, I say, listen, you are your own worst enemy. <laughs> and if you can solve that, then a lot of your other problems will probably go away. So what that looks like is the, the way I describe it is most of us, well, probably all of us, go through life looking at ourselves and looking at problems and looking at people through these lenses. And we don't know that we're wearing glasses, but these lenses distort and color the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves. And those lenses are our beliefs, what we believe to be true. Just like what I believed that it was all about achievement. I believed it was all about the idea. And I was pretty sure I was right. I didn't know that there were other options. So the, the tricky thing about our belief patterns is that we're not conscious of them. We just believe them to be true. We don't question them. Hence the term belief. It's something we believe to be true. So I help people uncover their belief patterns, how they, 
how they see the world, how they process information. Fear and anxiety is a huge one. It's you would be surprised to know how many CEOs and business owners struggle with anxiety and fear, this irrational fear that comes up when, when situations happen. And if we can deal with that, then a lot of the other symptoms tend to take care of themselves. So for example, business owners will say, I can't, I just can't get my people to take ownership. I need them to take more ownership. I can't, or they'll say, I can't find good people. I can't keep good people. So that's a Mm -hmm. symptom. As we dig into it, I find out that they suck at delegation (laughs) and they're a micromanager and they're driving people away. And if you dig into, as I dig into that, I'll find out that there's a fear at the root of that that says, I'm afraid to delegate because what if somebody's better at something than me? Or they believe that the business owner or the boss has to be the best at something. And so, as you can imagine, if you believe as the business owner, you have to be the best at something, or you're the, you're the only one who can do difficult things. When you accidentally hire somebody who's really good, and they're better at something than you are, then you will subconsciously drive them away because wow. of what you believe to be true. And that presents itself as, I can't keep good people. If I'm doing that, I'm the problem. So people say, I can't keep good people. And okay, it's probably not their fault. If you are driving, if you're a revolving door and you're bringing people in and turning them like a meat grinder, then you should probably open up the kimono and take a look inside, see what's going on in the house. Yeah, no, that's very good. And you're going very deep there. Now, what about, what about in the area of sales and growth? What sort of limiting beliefs get in the way there? A lot. The interesting thing about selling is it exposes a couple of the primal fears and touches on a lot of limiting beliefs. So, There are a few primal fears that we all have as humans. There's the fear of death or physical harm. Hopefully that's not an issue in a sales situation. There's the fear of poverty and there's the fear of criticism or rejection. And there's a few other fears, but these are the primal fears. So if you think about selling, one of the things that you'll hear a lot if you're selling is the word no or absolute or just no response. So that taps into the fear of criticism or rejection. Deep down, we see being rejected as a threat. So we will do all sorts of interesting things to avoid it. There's also the fear of poverty. So there's this really illogical thing that happens when we need to sell, but we're afraid of not getting the sale because we know we need that sale to pay our bills. Therefore, we avoid it. So we don't do the thing that we need to do to prevent the thing that we're afraid of. So it's Mm. completely irrational. So some of the the belief patterns that people have, really, a a lot of them are, are rooted in fear. But some of the biggest mistakes that I've seen people make when it comes to selling in the construction industry, we we believe that selling equals estimated. Mm. And we ask, well, how's that, how's that going? Well, I sent them an estimate. Yeah. Okay. Well, the reality is 
estimating has nothing to do with selling. You're like, what? That, I gave him an estimate. <laughs> okay, but do you want to sell? Do you want to sell stuff or do you just want to create estimates? So selling does not equal estimating. Interesting. And one of the things that I found that's unique to the construction industry is that we are so anchored to the cost of something. So if you think about the typical typical construction project, the way it's priced is I used to work in estimating for a big general contractor. And the way we priced jobs was you gathered all your bids, all your prices together, totaled it up, and then added overhead and profit at the bottom. And so it was based on cost plus a percentage. And even in our industry, there's lots of cost plus work. The reality is people are making buying decisions based on value, not mm-hmm. based on cost. So we unintentionally, well, unconsciously tie ourselves to the cost when our customers are making decisions based on value. So we need to talk about value more than we talk about cost. Also, a big limiting belief would be that objections objections are bad. Mm-hmm. If somebody asks a question, they're like, oh, they're, they're out. Objections are bad. Actually, objections show that somebody's thinking about it. It's kind of a, a buying side. Yeah. So you need to lean into those objections and, and look, for, look for those objections. Another common belief pattern about selling is that, quote, selling is salespeople are needy, they're annoying, they're desperate. If I'm calling somebody, you know, I don't want to bug them, I don't want to take something from them, I don't want to waste their time, mm-hmm. they feel like a burden if they're, they associate selling with being a burden. Mm-hmm. And what I found, is that, well, just let's just stay there for a moment. So if that's what you believe about selling, how excited will you be to pick up the phone and make 20 cold calls today? Not very. Will you probably find just about any other form of sanctified procrastination to keep yourself busy so you don't have to do that? I would say so. Yeah, you'll get pretty creative with other stuff. Like, oh, I better go clean the coffee pot again or go check the air in my tires and all sorts of things to keep you busy to avoid the thing that you believe is bad. So change the the way you think about selling. What I tell people is, Hey, look, I tell my clients who are, who I sense are a little reluctant about selling or cold calling and networking and building relationships. I tell them the reality is there are, at least a half dozen people out there in your market who are desperately looking for the solution that you provide. They, they need it. They want it. Maybe they know it. Maybe they don't know it. And your job is to get in front of them. Your job is to go find them. And when you find them, they will be very happy that you did because you're offering a valuable service to that person. So I tell people to act like you're giving away hundred dollar bills. <laughs> I like that. When you're making phone calls, you're looking for people who need help. And it yeah. is a, it's an, selling is an exchange of value. It's not, it's not taking something from someone. It's offering a valuable service and them paying an equitable amount of money in return for that service. 
So yes. So again, with the value, what you're saying is the fear, the the limiting belief is that p- contractors think that people make decisions solely on price, yeah. and that that's not the case. And even if they get an objection, that they just stick to their guns and keep explaining to the client exactly what's valuable about them. Is that sort of distill what you're saying? Yes. Yes, it does. And get away from price. People don't, I've worked with, I've bought upwards of $300 million worth of construction projects as an owner's rep for companies like Procter and Gamble, real estate developers, et cetera. And I can tell you, it's not about low price. I've even done Mm -hmm. work for government agencies who procurement processes were strictly competitive bid, open bid, public bid opening type stuff. Mm-hmm. And they, they are not all about price. What they, what they are about is yep. follow, here's the criteria from a big corporate buyer or a government buyer. Sure. Keep me out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Follow the procurement guidelines, the sourcing requirements. Make my life easy. Mm-hmm. Take care of my problems. And if you can do that, if you can follow my procurement guidelines, make my life easy and make problems go away, then they will send you work as much as possible. I, for example, I worked with a a government client and it was a large, very large annual contract that was worth over $10 million total. I won't go into a whole lot of details. Sure, of course. It was an annual contract with multiple renewals. And we were, when I arrived and got involved, we were the incumbent provider. Things were a little shaky, actually. Things were not going well. And I was able to kind of stabilize that relationship. And it became the easy button, added lots of value, solved a lot of problems for them, made them look good. And the buyer, Actually, I had conversations with the buyer where he asked questions like, what can I do within reason yeah. to, to position, to write these specs around you? Because I don't want anybody yes. else to come in here and get this job. <laughs> and there, this contract came up for bid not long after that. Very large, large contract. This was in two thousand. Several years ago, when the economy wasn't great, it was after the 2008 crash, and nobody else bid on the project. Huh. And it was because it was obvious that we were the incumbent. And mm-hmm. if you read the specs, you would see that it was written around us. Were we the cheapest? No. Were we valuable? Yes. So understand that it's about even in government contracts and where competitive bids seem to be all that matters. Yes. You have to be low to get the project sometimes, but once you get in there, you add massive value, then you position yourself much better to get the second project. Yeah. Now you mentioned something about sort of following the rules of the, the procurement process. I'm just, you mentioned it and I'm thinking how many of them come in doing what they, they asked? Is that, is that sort of a common thing or 
or do people fall down on that step quite a bit? What do you mean exactly? No, no I was, you're talking about like uh, following the guidelines of how the procurement process and, and making it easy and stuff. Like mm-hmm. which step do people fall down on the most? Like where, where they make mistake in that process? Incumbent providers can assume that they'll just get the next project or yeah. they will try to take advantage of that relationship and they'll, they won't fill out the bid forms properly. They won't submit all the necessary documentation. They will, once they get the contract, they won't, either they'll expect special treatments during the, from the finance and accounting folks as far as paying invoices and things like that. They won't go through change management properly. They won't manage their change orders. What does cause problems? They won't follow the, the documented processes. So. There's not one particular way that people tend to fall down, but it's it's really what it comes down to is don't get me in trouble. Yeah. That's what they're looking for is keep me out of trouble, make me look good, and I'll send as much work as I possibly can your way. That's awesome. I know that a lot of our listeners uh, were curious about this topic, so I'm glad you filled us in on the, the insight on that because uh, price and value uh, conversation is quite common with the people that I know. So definitely that'll help a lot. Now, Todd, I've had you here for a while and I want to make sure that I covered everything. Is there anything I, I should have asked you, but I I didn't. Hmm. Should have asked me, but you didn't. Nothing comes to mind, but there's one more thing I should say about value. Okay. There is an often, maybe almost always overlooked member of the business development team in the construction world. And that is, it's the people in the field. So I can tell you from experience that the foreman and superintendent and project managers have far more influence on a contractor's ability to get the second project than the CEO or the business development people or anybody else. So Mm -hmm. it's imperative well, here's what happens. Contractors will get the first project and they're like, man, we are just constantly bidding on work and we want to negotiate the next project. And, but we're, we're just constantly having to find new clients and we don't get it. So what they don't realize is that their superintendents and foremen and project managers are ruining the relationship <laughs> because they have no business development acumen. They don't understand the people in the field on the job sites, working with the clients every day, don't understand that they have a bigger impact on business developments than the people in the office or the people doing the presentations do. So just understand that everybody is in business development. Everybody who is part of the customer's experience is on the business development team. And the astute contractors who understand that they know that every conversation is about value. Every chance they get, they are reinforcing the value that they're offering to their clients. It's not just about burning through the project, scope, schedule, budget, et cetera. It's about adding value and reinforcing the value, looking for the opportunities, the next opportunities. My two favorite business development words are, what else? What mm-hmm. else? I've made so much money asking that question. What else? What other problems do you have? What else can we help you with? So 
Yeah, that's that's the only thing. It's not something that you should have asked me, but that's something I should have mentioned when it comes to business development. But no, I think this is this has been a good, a great conversation. Great, yeah. And speaking of value, you gave away lots of value today, and and thank you so much for coming on and and sharing. You you obviously have a gift for this, and I see you getting more and more successful as you as you move along, and can't wait to follow along and uh, see where you're going to go. Now, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'll leave a link in the descriptions on how you can connect with Todd and if you're interested in learning more about what he does. And if you have any feedback or questions, send me a note as well. That's it for today. And thank you for listening. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.